Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Anne Baer, who is now approaching her 106th birthday, was born in April 1914, one of six children to Frank and Mary Sidgwick. In the words of Sheila Markham, who in the Book Collector for Autumn 2014 wrote an article called Anne Baer at 100, I quote, The Sidgwicks were an erudite and well-connected family of distinguished scholars and schoolmasters. In 1908, the publishing firm of Sidgwick and Jackson was formed, which serves as a background to some of the 16 vignettes that Anne Baer wrote for the book collector between 2010 and 2014. The reader for all of them is Sarah Bennett starting with Painting for John Hayward and ending with The Corpse in the Piano. Painting for John Hayward by Anne Baer In the mid-1930s, I, then Anne Sidrick, and a friend, Elizabeth Edwards, were students at Chelsea School of Art. One of the teachers there was Robert Medley, already a well-known painter. He was also, as we knew, involved in literary circles in London, being a friend of Rupert Doon, who was producing the Auden Isherwood plays at the Westminster Theatre. Robert Medley told us that a friend of his, John Hayward, wanted a job of painting done at his flat in London, and if we liked, he would give us an introduction. I forget the details, but Elizabeth and I went to see John Hayward in his ground-floor flat in Beena Gardens off Old Brompton Road. We had already been warned that he lived in a wheelchair, and I think also that his incapacity was a result of an accident. In the front room in which he lived and worked were two adjoining floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, with three vertical supports some eight inches wide between and at each end of the shelves. These had been all skilfully painted to resemble carved marble, a convincing trompe l'oeil on an off-white background, veins of dull red and viridian green, with black spots and thin wavy lines. Each of the vertical supports was painted as though carved with long flutings rounded at the ends and surmounted with faux-carved capitals. They were all filled with books. John Hayward had made two more similar bookshelves, which the carpenter had painted white. Our job was to paint them to match the existing shelves. So bringing our paints and equipment, we spent three or four days in this room painting away. John Hayward sat in his wheelchair at a desk in the window, reading or writing. He was obviously incapacitated, in a crouching rather than sitting posture. He had a walking stick with which he could punch the wheelchair around the room. His head and face were quite pleasant and friendly. He was looked after by Claire, his butler valet nurse, whom he would sometimes summon by shouting, Claire! And Claire would enter from the back rooms to fetch him books or to collect his letters. We painted in silence or in whispered consultations while he was working. I suppose when his work was done or he felt chatty, we all talked together, as Elizabeth and I painted. We found we had acquaintances in common, as Elizabeth and I were involved in the current cultural events in London, not all artistic. We discussed the Auden Isherwood plays, the René Clare films, the books of D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster, etc. I do not remember discussing politics, but we most certainly did. Everyone then was watching the rise of Hitler with terror, and we, the younger generation, saw more clearly than our elders where it was leading. I do remember discussing social problems of the day, 
and John Hayward mentioning the many letters that agony aunts of the press received from barely literate girls. Should they sleep with their boyfriends or not? I have an impression that John Hayward was rather gratified by our then-unconventional liberal attitude. One must remember that then it was almost impossible for unmarried women to get contraceptive advice. I have no recollection of lunches, but I do recall that on the first afternoon Claire brought in a tray of tea things for John Hayward, but not for us. He was sent away for more teacups and more china tea for the young ladies. John Hayward explained to us that, the week before, the carpenters installing the new shelves had been given Indian tea in the kitchen, and that Claire assumed that the painters of the furniture should be treated the same as the makers of the furniture. We were also offered Osborne biscuits, and Elizabeth demonstrated the little-known fact that Osborne biscuits, when soaked in tea, retained exactly the same shape, while increasing in size by half as much again. John Hayward appeared deeply interested. Elizabeth and I enjoyed the experience very much. We parted on friendly terms. I suppose he paid us, but I do not remember. Years later, in the early 1950s, I saw him again at one of the Sunday Times book fairs in London. By then, the editor of the book collector, he was much changed. The disease, whether the result of an accident or not, had progressed horribly. His body in the wheelchair was even more contorted, his hand movements jerky, his features changed and out of proportion, but he was talking as volubly as ever. I did not mention our earlier meeting, and I do not think he recognised me. I sometimes wonder what happened to those bookshelves. Perhaps they never survived the bombing of London a few years later. Perhaps they still stand in the room at Bina Gardens, owned by someone ignorant of their history. The Gravy Soup Plagiarism by Anne Baer, Biblio Vignettes 1 I went to school at Hayes Court School in Hayes, Kent. The headmistress and founder of the school was Miss Catherine Cox. She was not the Catherine Cox known as Carr, Rupert Brooks' lover, whose portrait by Duncan Grant hangs in the Courtauld Gallery, but nevertheless could be described as being on the fringes of Bloomsbury, and so was the school. Unusually in those days, the works of Lytton Stratchley and Virginia Woolf were studied and held up as models of descriptive writing. Virginia came to a lecture at the school, as did Roger Fry, and the classrooms were decorated with facsimiles of Renoir pastels from the Marais Gazelleshaft portfolios. It was 1933 or 1934, I had already left the school, but my younger sister was a pupil there, when she told me with appropriate giggles how recently at morning assembly, Miss Cox announced to the whole school and staff of the great honour that a short English composition by one of the pupils, 14-year-old Jacqueline Stiven, had been published in the literary pages of the New Statesman and Nation. She had a copy in hand and read the item aloud. There was a gasp of amazement from the assembled pupils and, though they were supposed to be silent at assembly, many of them exclaimed, "'But, Miss Cox, that was what you gave us for dictation last term!' It comes from Virginia Woolf's book. Miss Cox looked again at the paper in her hand, clasped her head in horror, saying, Oh, Bunny, what have you done? At the time, Bunny, David Garnett, was the literary editor of the New Statesman and Nation, and so was responsible for everything printed in those pages. He was also Miss Cox's sister's husband's sister's husband. So it was a family as well as a literary gaffe. I suppose Jacqueline Stiven was rebuked, and she apologised and the matter was hushed up. There are some tart comments on it in Virginia Woolf's diary and letters. 
Years passed. The Second World War came and went. In the late 1940s, I was working at the Turnstile Press, a book publishing firm started by the New Statesman. One of our publications was a book called Turnstile One, a selection made by the then literary editor V.S. Pritchett of items from back numbers of the New Statesman. He used to give me notes of authors, titles or vague descriptions of items, and I had to identify them, find them in the office file copies and get them typed out for his consideration. On one occasion, he said to me, there's a little item by a 14-year-old child. It'll be rather amusing to have a child's contribution in a book. After all those years, I remembered my sister's story. I found Jacqueline Stiven's composition. It was almost word for word the description from A Room of One's Own of the stingy meals served in women's colleges in Cambridge compared with the lavish dinners in men's. Here was the soup. It was a plain gravy soup. There was nothing to stir the fancy in that. I told V.S. Pritchett the whole story, and the little item was not included in Turnstile 1. Had it not been for the chance of my sister telling me the story so many years before, and of my being in Turnstile Press at that moment, the plagiarism, which had not been spotted by David Garnett, nor Miss Cox, nor V.S. Pritchett, would have been repeated. More years later, I chanced to meet Jacqueline Stiven, then a mature woman, and I told her the later story. She told me she had been falsely accused all along, that an aunt of hers had torn a page from her exercise book and sent it in without her knowledge to the new statesman. Mr Tennyson's Pudding by Anne Baer, Bibliovignettes 2 In the late 1940s, when I was living on Chiswick Mall, a neighbour was an old lady, Miss Joseph, reputed to be 90 and, quote, a bit proud of her age. The houses on Chiswick Mall have small gardens on the opposite side of the road on the edge of the Thames. Chiswick Ayat is just across a strip of water and at low tide one could walk muddily across to the island. These almost public gardens induced quite a lot of chat between owners as they tended their gardens. Miss Joseph had an occasional gardener to help her. She used to refer to him as my plant destroyer. She told me once that when she was a child, but where I never knew, Tennyson used to visit her mother. On one occasion he was having lunch with Mrs Joseph, and my friend, then a small child, was present. When the footman brought round the pudding, it was first offered politely to the honoured guest, Mr Tennyson, sitting by the hostess. He said to her, "'It looks so good I could eat it all,' to which she, the generous hostess, replied, "'Oh, please do, Mr Tennyson.' Whereupon he spooned the whole pudding onto his plate and ate it, while the disappointed little girl watched and remembered. Bernard Shaw's Beard by Anne Baer, Bibliovignettes 3 In the late 1940s, Turnstile Press, a book-publishing firm started by the New Statesman and Nation, was publishing Let Cowards Flinch, a long satirical poem comparing the newly elected Labour government with the French Revolution, and Harold Lasky, Bernard Shaw, Clement Attlee, Richard Crossman and others with counterparts in Paris in the revolutionary years. The title was a quotation from The Red Flag. It was written by Sagittarius, who was a regular contributor of satirical verse of a political nature to the New Statesman. I was working at Turnstile Press at the time, I do not remember why David Lowe, who had so many New Statesman connections, did not do the illustrations for this book, 
but anyway we arranged for Vicky to do them. He was then working on the Daily Express and making a name for himself as an apt commentator with his caricatures and cartoons. He made a series of wonderful drawings for Sagittarius's verses. When Michael Hodson, Turnstile Press's manager, and I were looking over the drawings, we were rather disconcerted by Vicky's caricature of Bernard Shaw, drawn with a long, flowing beard, which was not the image everyone had of Shaw, who was bearded, but with a neatly trimmed white beard. Hodson decided that the drawing could not be used as it was, and, though I offered with a little process white and a paintbrush to adjust it, he was against such sacrilege, and sent me off with the drawing to the Daily Express in Fleet Street to request Vicky to alter it. I had not met Vicky before, but in the large open-plan office to which I was directed, I instantly recognised him from his own caricatures of himself that often appeared in his cartoons. He obligingly made the alteration of the drawing. The beard was shortened. I thought, as I went along Fleet Street with the drawing in a big envelope on which I had written, Make Bernard Shaw's Beard Shorter, what, had I been knocked down in the traffic, the police would have made of this envelope, it being the only identifying record I had on me. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. Receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive. 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.